0: Before we start today's podcast, I want to encourage you to go to dogbehaviorconference.com and check out this year's Dog Behavior Conference. It's a three-day live online event available to anyone around the world who loves dogs and wants to live their best life together with them. Registration is open now and seats are going fast, so visit dogbehaviorconference.com and reserve your spot today. That's dogbehaviorconference.com. Now, let's get to the podcast. On the podcast today, back by popular demand, is the amazing Mike Shikashio. Guys, if you don't know this name by now, I don't know where you are, you've been, because it must be under a rock because if you know anything about dogs or anything about the dog training industry, then you'll have heard Mike's name. He's spoken at a ton of conferences. He has an amazing podcast. He has an amazing uh, aggression course that we send all of our trainers after they've done VSA to. And he is a mind of information when it comes to talking about aggressive behavior in our dogs. So, welcome to the podcast, Mike. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm also so glad that you're speaking at the dog behavior conference this year, April 2024.
1: Yes, thanks so much for having me back, Victoria. It's a, it's an honor and pleasure to be here. So, and I'm excited for the conference as well.
0: Before we start about talking about what you're going to talk about, which is. Gosh, doesn't everybody need to know about this topic with, uh, you know, dogs uh, showing aggressive behavior towards people. But how did you get started in all of this? Can you tell me about your journey? Yeah,
1: uh, you know, a I was um, completely in a different career before this. People are like, what did you do before? And I, used, I always tell them to their surprise. I used to work in a casino. <laughs> I was in the casino and hospitality industry. So nothing to do with dogs. A lot to do with people, though, which I learned a lot of people skills doing that job. But uh, I w- at the time, I was fostering, uh, doing a lot of rescue, foster stuff, volunteer. Um, and I had tons of dogs coming in out of my, out of my home. And I find, found that a lot of these dogs were being given up on because of behavior issues. And one of them was aggression or, you know, nothing major at the time, but for me anyways, you know, the foster dogs. But it was just, you know, it really got me wanting to learn more about how to help these dogs stay in their homes, avoid getting surrendered and other worse outcomes. So uh, I just took a deep dive into training and behavior and started off with, you know, basic training and, you know, typical issues, house training and walking on leash. But that really kept going into the aggression side and then it's just, I just always found it interesting. And again, the best way I could help dogs in my capacity. So it sort of ballooned into training dogs and teaching other trainers and workshops and conferences. And it just kept going on and on. And that's all I focus on now is just uh, aggression in dogs and helping those dogs and the people.
0: Are you. Do you do any, as I say, practical? Do you do? Do you take on any clients uh, anymore, or are you just so full of conferences and speaking engagements? Because I know you speak around the
1: world. I take uh, an occasional client by referral, and it's usually a very complex or interesting case. And the way the reason I do that is to stay sharp. I don't want to ever be like I'm not training dogs ever again, because then you'd kind of lose touch with what's really going on out there in the real world. So I do take some consulting. Usually, it's. like another trainer case or a shelter case or something like that. So, uh, but yes, I'm mostly teaching and traveling now, so I have limited time to take on those cases.
0: Now, when you take on a case, because oh, obviously since the pandemic, well, even before the pandemic, we were doing online consultations, but the pandemic made online consultations expand exponentially. I mean, it mm-hmm. just, it just, it just took off. So. And we found here at VSA, and we also found just in my sort of private practice, as it were, that doing virtual consultations for aggression cases actually had many benefits um, in the fact that you weren't there stressing the dog out, right? Mm-hmm. Especially if your dog had aggressive behavior towards humans or felt uncomfortable around people. Did you find, do you find that actually doing virtual consultations for aggression cases is easier, better? What are the pros and cons of that?
1: Well, one of the pros is that a dog can't bite you through a Zoom session, right? <laughs> so, it's much safer for the trainer. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. It's much less stressful for the dog, if, especially if there's issues with strangers or people coming to the home. Because most of the initial consultation, we're spending a lot of time talking to the client, getting to know them, getting them to trust us. Uh, and we spend actually very little time with the dog during the first session because we have to get all that background history and information. Uh, so, it's a much more comfortable setting for the client. So, there's a pro there more comfortable for the dog, much safer. Um, you get a lot more, I think, attention one-on-one versus having to worry about what the dog is doing, and how comfortable there is. So, there's a lot of pros to it. And I also find that with technology now, you know, being able to communicate through video, through, um, you know, the different apps that you can use to get keep your data and keep your record keeping going, it's just so much easier now than even five years ago, right? So, there's, there's definitely a lot of pros. The cons, I would say, is that you know, some things do tend to go faster if you're there in person, especially if you can actually work with the dog. So, for instance, let's say it's a dog that has, you know, leash reactivity or something, um, and the dog is okay with us working with them in close proximity. We can often, as the trainer, demonstrate the skills and say, "Okay, this is how you do it. This is what it looks like," and and make it look good. And, and usually, dogs are going to respond pretty well to most trainers. And so we can get it done a little faster that way. So there is some mechanical skills aspects I find that can, uh, uh, are better in person. But even then, you know, um, it's, it's, if you need somebody like I've consulted on cases where another trainer's working the case, and maybe they just need the strategy or the plan to move forward. I've done that kind of hybrid session as well. And then in some places in the world, there are no trainers or there are very few trainers that work with aggression or that use positive reinforcement methods. So, I might be, or somebody that's doing an online consult, might be the only option for that person, and that was really uh, fascinating and rewarding aspect of the pandemic is I was getting clients from all over the world, um, places like Pakistan and uh, Norway, New Zealand, Australia, like all these you know places that they don't have a lot of trainers. Well in some places, they don't have a lot of trainers near them. So uh, that was kind of a really nice aspect. So you can absolutely work aggression cases online, um, which was sort of frowned upon five years ago, but now it's quite the norm, wouldn't you say?
0: Yeah, it definitely is. I mean, we positively offer virtual training consultations with our trainers and uh, that want to work aggression cases, but all kinds of cases. I mean, we don't just focus on, on aggression. And we do find that it works. And I think that hybrid as well that you were talking about and people that can't access great information can now have access to an expert that they are able to, that, that that can help them. That's, that's what we found is, is amazing. And, you know, I think back to it's meal, the dog, when it's meal, the dog first started, which can you believe it is I created it in late 2004 and it started airing in 2005 and we had to put cameras in the rooms and fix them up to get any kind of behavior when, when we weren't here. So if, if there was like a separation issue, then, you know, we'd have to construct and put all the cameras and then leave the house and to, to, to see what the dog was doing when we weren't there or to anyway. And when I think about how we used to do it and then be outside and watch on monitors and things like that, and now all you need is a webcam.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Or your
0: phone even. And I actually ended up doing that because uh, I I know we're going slightly off topic here, but I I think it's interesting because I do want to talk about the impact of aggressive behavior on people. And I, you know, my beautiful Shih Tzu, Bella passed away about a month ago. Now she was uh, an amazing dog. She was 16 years old, but it was her time. And my chihuahua who's 13 has never been without another dog in the house ever. Mm. I had my chocolate lab before I got um, Bella. I got Bella when she was 11 and she lasted for five years. And so, you know, you, you expect you're the existing dog, the dog that, that, you know, survives as it were, that they're going to, they're going to grieve. They're going to mourn. They're going to look for that, their friend. And, But she had no separation issues. She had, you you know, it was like, okay, it was sort of an acceptance. We all had to accept what had happened. But because I also, you know, split my time between New York and here in Atlanta, when I took her to New York, that was a different deal. And of course, it's a completely different environment and it's a different place. And it's a place that she's not as used to as she is here. And so for the first time, she was really struggling to cope especially on separation. And as I was working through that, I realized the stress of when, A, seeing your dog not in a great place or seeing them stressed out, anxious, but then the impact on the person. (laughs) And I think sometimes as trainers, unless you're experiencing it yourself, you kind of forget it. You're good at dishing out, but you forget the impact that when you see your dog, in that state, or you see your, you, there's a behavior issue that is, you know, tends towards the extreme or could be dangerous or, you know, h- how much it impacts. Now I know what I'm doing, so I have control over it and now we're working through it. And she's already showing a lot of improvement. But for somebody who doesn't know what to do, that's very tough. Focusing on the people side of aggressive behavior. Uh, and, uh, you know, talking to, to clients of my own when I'm working aggression cases, that that what some of the words that they say are, I feel so embarrassed, I feel ashamed, I feel out of control. And I then of course, my heart bleeds for them. And I'm like, well, please use me. I'm your support system. And we're going to put other support systems in place. But how do you deal with that?
1: Yeah. Lots to unpack there, I think, because you're absolutely right. The, the emotions involved for the people in these cases is so profound and can run so deep. Uh, and that's why as trainers and consultants, we have to be very sensitive to that, especially for working aggression cases. So, the number one tool, I think, to employ in any aggression cases, empathy for the client, because they're going through a lot. And if we don't recognize that, we're not going to be able to help them as effectively because they have to feel they can trust us with the information they're giving us. They have to feel that they're feeling being supported in the information we're giving and what we're doing. And so it always starts in that place. We have to, regardless of their situation, they may be doing things that we don't agree with. They might be having some techniques or beliefs that we don't agree with. But I always come from a place of empathy because they're doing the best they can typically with the information they have. Um, So, that, you know, the embarrassment, the the being ashamed is, is a normal part of it, you know, and it's because... There's a lot of self-blame. They're like, "Oh, what did I do wrong? I'm not being the pack leader enough," and all these other myths that come into it, and all these belief systems, and and the noise that they're getting from their research online. You know, they're getting. Let's face it. You know, talk training. There's there's so many different viewpoints. And, yeah. I mean, <laughs> when you go on Google, it's much it's much worse than Doctor Google. It's it's much worse when you look at training information, mm. and so they're getting bombarded with all of this different, um, these different ideas, these different things to try. And so it gets so confusing and you can you can often sense that confusion when you go in there. So one of the best things we do is first empathize, get them to be in a place where they can trust us and feel safe, giving us that information. Uh, and then laying out a plan that helps them feel like this is the path forward. This makes sense for me and my dog um, because uh, it's, it's concrete. It doesn't feel like I've got to think about so many different things and weigh these things. And that again is the role of an effective behavior consultant is to recognize where we need to clear up misconceptions and where we need to clear up confusions. Um, And then most importantly, it's just recharging that emotional bank account for them, right? Figuring out how can we help them feel better about what they're doing with their dog? Because let's face it, nobody signs up for, I'm going to adopt a dog and I want it to go bite everybody. (laughs) Or I want it to pull me all over the place and bark at everybody on walks. Nobody well, mostly nobody signs up for that, right? And so, when they get that, um, it can feel like it can take a toll on that that human-animal bond, right? They're like, you know, I don't get it. Why is my dog being like this? I'm the one that feeds them and gets them their toys and these comfy dog beds, well, you know, especially if it's an owner-directed aggression case, you know, how dare my dog, you know, behave like this towards me. Um, so, I always go in with trying to figure out what can we do to help repair that bond. And it's usually... What do you guys – what what do you like to do with your dog? What did you get your dog for in the first place? You know, where can we – where do you see yourself with your dog? And discovering those goals can help to recharge that emotional bank account so that way uh, they feel like they have a path forward. But none of that comes without that empathy component because mm. if they don't feel like they're being heard about the embarrassment, the frustration, the conflict with their dog – you know, all these factors, then we're not going to actually make any progress. So, the human side, I I tell all of my students and anybody working with training, you have to love people. You absolutely have to love people because they're 90% of the equation. The dog's often the easy part and using air quotes there, but often Mm. it's the easy part. It's like, okay, it could be a standard, you know, resource guarding case. We can go in with our typical counter conditioning procedures and fix that case and make it much better. But people side is the most important part. So, yeah. Uh, good question. Long answer. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, well, it was a, actually my question was, I think, longer than the answer you gave. But, but as I was kind of going into that, I, I wanted to put myself into the fact that, oh my gosh, like I had to deal with a behavior issue and I don't have to deal with a lot of behavior issues with my own dogs. Right. But I had to here. So mm-hmm. I, was, I, was, I, I was presented with a problem. And, um, yeah, it was, it was hard. So it, it really just got me thinking, my gosh, we do, we have to, we have to empathize with people's, their, their experience, um, not judge them, empathize with yes. them yes. and take them on a journey. I think, yes. you know, we can be quite judgmental of like, oh, you shouldn't have done that. We shouldn't have like, why did you employ that trade Or why have you got a short collar on? Or why have you got, um, yes. Now, The other question I get asked is like, why is my dog being aggressive towards me? Or why is my dog aggressing at people, guests that come in, gets lots of love? You know, I had it as a puppy. Why has it suddenly become like this?
1: Yeah. Big question again. <laughs> and I can yeah. probably lean towards, you know, uh, for my talk for for your conference, I'm going to be talking about the title of the talk is Hostility in the Home, Dog Aggression Directed at Family or Visitors. Mm-hmm. So, we could talk about some of those reasons why dogs might display aggression to somebody in your home, whether it's towards you, towards somebody in your family or towards somebody that's coming over, that's your friend. And The interesting thing about the home environment is that it's in many ways set up to say, this is the place I need to potentially display aggressive behavior because there's things that are going on that make it more likely to happen versus if the dog's like outside free roaming and has all these space to move around in because uh, there's a lot of things in the home. So, it could be resources, you know, that's a very common one and that could be directed at family the owner or visitors. Uh, so, the dog is just saying, I like what I have here. And from an evolutionary standpoint, it's very normal behavior for me to want to keep this thing that's valuable and that's that's meant for either my safety or my actual survival. It's a, it's a normal behavior. And I tell all my clients and trainers that it's, resource guarding is normal. To not see it would actually be somewhat abnormal from an evolutionary standpoint. Now, of course, we want to the dog to fit into our society, so we don't need biting around a food ball, right? Uh, so, that's one of the most common ones, dogs protecting things of value to them, whether it's food, toys, bones, resting spots, or even the people in the home. So, when we're talking about aggression directed at family members or visitors, sometimes it could be the actual person, that the guardian, that is the resource. Uh, and that the dog's like, I don't like when people take my comfy spot on that person's lap away, or I don't want to be taken away from that person's attention or the treats they have or all these things. So, it could be resource guarding of that person. Or it could be true protective behavior. And there's a difference there. So, there's dogs that guard their owner, like it's a, a toy or a bone. And that can seem kind of strange when I feel like, oh, I'm like a food or a toy to my dog. Well, that's... And I just kind of tell them well because your dog really loves you and wants to keep you around mm-hmm. so <laughs> um, so that's that's one form but then there's actually true protective behavior where some dogs will actually perceive a threat to their owner or the guardian and want to protect that person from the threat that's much less common although a lot of our clients want to think that way <laughs> it's sort of a romantic gesture but actually it's it's often the dogs are trying to protect themselves uh, but in some cases the dog could be trying to protect the person and it's Usually, the breeds that we've selected for that, you know, so think of Dobermans, Malinois, Rottweilers. You know, some of the breeds that may have a higher likelihood of doing that. But that could be also one reason. And then sometimes the territory, it's the property that can be a reason. The dog just like I want to. I don't like intruders to my territory. And again, from an evolutionary standpoint, very normal behavior for that dog to say okay. I, would, I need to keep people away from my property, especially again, if it's dogs we've selected for as humans to do that. So livestock guardian dogs and other dogs that we that are kind of bred and selected for protecting particular property areas. So territory is another big one. But then when you take these dynamics, you put them in the home environment, you have a tighter space, you have less choice of control in the environment, less options to move away from things, less options to navigate around resources. And you usually have many more resources in the home. So going back to what I was saying before, the home is kind of set up in a way to see a higher likelihood of aggression towards things because there's so many valuable things, so many, you know, tight spaces, less options to move around. So the more you restrict a dog's movement or options, the more likely they're going to resort to that fight response instead of the flight or freeze response. So uh, another thing to consider in the home environment. And of so course- a
0: lot of so let me just say so you're saying that um, confinement is a true is, is an issue, uh, tight yeah. spaces are an issue. I mean definitely I see it sort of mm-hmm. you know the the hallways and especially in in the UK yeah. where houses tend to be a bit small and have narrow mm-hmm. narrow hallways things like that. Those can be the touch points.
1: Exactly uh, the way I think of it, it's kind of like every. Every mammal has like a, what's called a critical distance. It's like this bubble around you. In which once somebody gets into that personal space or so that critical distance, is when you feel threatened. So every person has it. You think about like you're walking down this, this city streets or something, and somebody gets into your right into your face. They have breached your critical distance. Now, if you picture that like imaginary bubble, almost like like a balloon around a person or a dog. And let's say you have two dogs in the home and they're, they're, they've got their balloons around. There might be different sizes depending on the dogs, but you try to cram those into a tight hallway, they're not going to fit. Those balloons are going to get stuck or they're going to overlap. That's when the problems occur because you, they can't get further away from each other. So, they're stuck there. So, tight spaces absolutely can be a catalyst for aggression often dog-dog aggression in the home or dog-to-human aggression if that person breaches that dog's critical distance or pops their bubble, so to speak. So, yeah, it's something to really watch out for. And that's why anything that restricts a dog's movement, and it can be obvious things like a crate or a kennel, very restrictive, uh, being tethered, but being on leash, being restrained by the client, you know, if they're just trying to hold the dog back from attacking Uncle Bob, you know, that is restraint. That is restriction of movements, barriers, fences, gates, anything that's going to restrict the dogs natural, like I need to get away from this thing. And that can be even artificially done, by the way, you could say, oh, I'm going to teach my dog to go to their bed, right? Mm-hmm. Let's go to your dog bed which we used to do all the time let's face it yeah it was like a perfect like yeah (laughs) oh my god (laughs) you know a good alternative behavior like it looks good like dog's not biting uncle bob if he's laying on his dog bed but for fear which is kind of one of the reasons i was going to get into next is that fear is one of the most common reasons for dog aggression and if we restrict that flight option by saying hey go to your dog bed don't move from there or go to your dog bed that just artificially removing the dog's flight option so then when Uncle Bob happens to walk by and breach that critical distance even though the dog's laying down sort of nicely on their dog bed then that can be the problem so cuz we've restricted that dog's flight option so i always recommend if you have a fearful dog give him all the choice to move away and actually reinforce that too so if they decide to get up there off their dog bed we actually want to say, yes, I actually like that because you're not biting Uncle Bob. We're going to reinforce that. I'm still going to give you a cookie, some praise for actually making that preferable choice. So, uh, and that's a hard one for us trainers to wrap our head around sometimes because we, especially if we have been doing it for a while, you're like, you always thinking like, oh, if the dog breaks the stay on their dog bed, it's oh. a bad trainer, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: of course. I mean, I've got to teach my dog a long down stay and get them to, to, to lie down and it, it looks very fancy, but, um, and we're all about that, but. Then, then uh, I see it as, um, you know, how would you feel? As you're saying, you're walking down a street and somebody comes into your space. If somebody's behind you restricting your movement, or if somebody's telling you just to go, stay there, as a, like, and you can't move whilst this threat comes to you, how are you going to feel about it? Giving a, a escape routes, I think, are, are really is really important. I, I have to say, Mike, I'm kind of going through, and we are definitely at VSA. We're kind of going through this, this new sort of evolution. Revolution i don 't really know what the the best word to describe it is, but in in the fact that we we feel that in dog training anyway that we are putting dogs into a set of artificial poses that May be good for us, but are not necessarily good for dogs. One of those is sit. One of those is down. The down stay, go to your bed, when the dog is really uncomfortable and expecting them to stay there and do, and and not really taking the dog's needs into account. So when working with any dog, they don't have to be anxious or they don't have to be fearful, but always giving them that escape route and allowing them to move. What what do you think about that? I know it's kind of going off on a tangent, but I do think, yeah. as you said, it's relevant.
1: Absolutely. And I love that that's the direction where the community at large, I think in dog training, the positive reinforcement community is moving towards saying, do we really need to teach, sit down, stay? Um, Yes. In some cases, sure. They're useful cues, but when we're thinking about the behavior and the overall welfare of the dog in certain contexts, do we really need to teach those things or should we be focusing on the cause of the symptoms we're seeing. So the symptoms being biting, lunging, growling, whatever, fearful behaviors. Those are the symptoms of an underlying cause and it's oftentimes fear or frustration or anxiety or stress or all these other things that if we don't focus on that, we're never actually going to fix the symptoms. We can mask them. We can suppress them, which wouldn't be right because we're not helping the dog feel better in that situation. So, um, yeah, I, I love that that's happening. That conversation is happening more and we're seeing much greater shifts towards let's, let's look at this more holistically. Let's look at the dog's underlying motivations for whatever the issue we're trying to fix. And I'm using air quotes there because it really yes. isn't fixing. It's more, um, it's more part of that journey where we're helping that dog in their, in their environment, in the world, navigating the world. And we can't do that oftentimes through sit down, those kind of no. behaviors, right? No.
0: I, I, you know, I think I, I see that these dogs that are having uh, – that these feelings are stuck anyway. Mm-hmm. Why, are, why are we causing them to be even more stuck by not allowing them to move? Surely we need to unstick them. <laughs> Surely we need to let them move in the way that makes them feel more comfortable.
1: Yeah the the best thing you can do for a dog that's not feeling safe is to give them choice to move to a point of safety and if we restrict that we're going to have we're going to actually delay things much longer for ourselves now I did want to touch though upon the dogs that I was talking about earlier, the truly protective dogs, those yes. dogs, yes, we can yes. teach the sit, the watch <laughs> me, the typical cues, because it's almost like, you know, we're training in that sense. Like if we're training a border colleague that's hurting sheep, certain cues and certain directions, things like that. But we're just allowing the natural behavior to kind of dictate the course of actions there. But when we put cues, we put controls on it. So, same thing for, you know, Malinois that's going to be like, oh, I'm a Malinois and my job is to protect my person. Uh, that dog is not fearful of Uncle Bob. Bob coming in. That dog's like, yeah, I'm going to bite Uncle Bob if he plants my owner. (laughs) So, yeah, I need to be cute to sit or stay and and not actually bite Uncle Bob. So, But fortunately, those are very much the minority of the cases. Those are the rare exceptions. Most of the time, there's some underlying thing going on. Mm -hmm. And the one that's, I think, really important to touch on too is pain, pain and underlying medical issues. So, this can happen, again, directed at owners or guardians, family members, visitors, because anybody the guardian or anybody could be predictive of pain if they touch the dog or do something with the dog or to the dog in which elicits that pain response. That's a very common reason for aggression in dogs as well as a highly underdiagnosed cause for aggression in dogs. It's something I Always mention, and every podcast I do, and everything I always mention pain because it's so often missed, and what a travesty when we miss that, and we try to do other things, or even worse, resort to punishment for a dog just saying "ouch," you know. And when I say "ouch," I, I say "ouch" with my teeth because that's how I communicate. Or I "ouch" with a growl, and somebody's not somebody does the complete opposite, you know, of saying "hey." Okay, you know, don't do that to me. and I'm going to make it worse for you and cause more pain by my punishment techniques. So that's why I'm constantly on that mission to say, always look for pain, underlying medical issues, things that can be causing the dog discomfort. Because if you miss that, you're missing the cause and then you're not going to address the symptoms at all.
0: And hallelujah to that. That's why we have Daniel Mills talking at -hmm. the conference about pain. We have Sarah Heath touching on it. Uh, and I saw a statistic. I don't know if it's right because I think sometimes things could be skewed, but this, this, this particular study had shown that 80% of aggression cases, around 80% were as undiagnosed pain.
1: That was actually out of Daniel Mills' practice. Oh, it th- was Daniel. I believe. Okay. Because a has num- um, been a
0: number of studies, and I yes. forget which one, yeah. but I yeah. I think
1: that was out of his behavior practice or so okay. He was related to that behavior practice. But yeah, absolutely. I would say that many veterinary behavior practices are probably going to see high numbers like that uh, because of the underdog. And you, when you think about it, Victoria, at least cases that get stuck for a while, meaning the trainer's been working with them. They've been doing counter conditioning, you know, all these Typical strategies in the cases getting stuck, oftentimes, then we're referring to a veterinary behaviorist or a veterinary specialist that works with behavior, and then they see the pain issues. Mm. So that's why you might see a higher skewed number towards a higher percentage. But I I think it's definitely up there, you know, in, yeah. the, in the number of aggression cases.
0: Sarah Fisher from um, ACE is also going to be speaking at the conference, and she really helps people um see their dogs in in a different way, see how they move and um, give them opportunities for movement with wonderful free work. She's also speaking. And, you know, I I definitely, I love free work. And I I also, she kind of opened my eyes to watching dogs in a different way. And I use it all the time when I'm working with any kind of animal on and off the TV. It, It doesn't matter. And my gosh! When your eyes are opened and you see how many dogs are actually there is some kind of uh, there's some kind of of physical pain there. There's kind of some kind of stomach ache. There's a there's a reason why the dog. It's, it's just like a mood. I, I don't feel like being touched today. That that when you understand that, it opens up a whole new world and. Uh, That's why understanding body language and looking at the way the dog is moving. Is there, is there any difference? Is there, are there any sudden changes that you notice? And it it doesn't have to be that the dog is limping. Uh, I remember there was this dog that was showing just a slight arch in its back a slight arch. And you might think, oh, well, then there's some problem with the spine. Actually, no, this dog had a stomach ache, And in fact, this dog had major gut issues that wasn't always. I mean, some of it, sometimes it still was loose and sometimes the still was perfectly fine, but there was gut, this dog had gut issues. And so when we, when I recognized that and there was more exploration into this, then, you know, sort out the gut issues. And now you have a dog that doesn't really mind being touched. I mean, that's a sort of simplified thing, but that's something that we do have to have to look at. Now, the the, the kind of practical things that you can do, as in your dog is showing aggressive behaviour. Oh my god, you need a quick fix. A, air quotes again Mm -hmm. what do you do I'd like to discuss that and maybe some more long-term solutions and some of the things that you're you're going to touch on during your uh, presentation but uh, I'll come back to you after this very short break it's my favorite weekend of the year okay maybe after Thanksgiving and my daughter's birthday but it really is something I look forward to all year long the dog behavior conference It seems like I say this every year, but it really is true. The 2024 lineup of Dog Behavior Conference speakers has me as fired up as I've ever been for what I truly believe is the most meaningful, enlightening, impactful, and inspirational event available to dog geeks like you and me anywhere in the dog world with speakers including returning favorites like Sarah Fisher, Mike Shikashio, Eric Bloom, Andrew Hale, and Sarah Heath, to newcomers like Robert Hewings, Marty and Mikhail Becker, Lisa and Brad Wagner, and more. The range of topics covered is custom-tailored to serve you no matter where you are on your dog journey, a wide-eyed newbie figuring things out for the first time, or a long-time professional trainer or shelter rescue worker looking to fine-tune your skills and knowledge. It seems like everywhere you turn now since COVID, someone is offering yet another online event, course or conference, promising the latest and greatest in dog training knowledge. But we've been doing this for over a decade, including in-person dog behavior conferences since 2010 to accompany our long-time Victoria Stillwell Academy and Positively.com courses for guardians and pet pros alike. So go to dogbehaviorconference.com now to check out the DBC and secure your seat today. Registration is open and available to you wherever you are in the world. The live event happens from April the 19th to the 21st, but you'll automatically get access to all of the recordings from the conference for 12 months. So it's okay if you can't join us live for some or all of the weekend. The DBC is special and I'd hate for you to miss it so visit dogbehaviorconference.com now to get your ticket that's dogbehaviorconference.com and now back to the podcast I'm back with Mike Shikashio we're talking about aggression especially towards family members and visitors in the home so much fabulous information already Mike What are your top tips? Let's say, you know, your dog is suddenly showing aggressive behavior. Of course, we've got to think of that pain component. What happens if we've done all the investigations and actually that the dog has what we hope is a clean bill of health, yet it's, it's showing this really concerning behavior. Everybody's freaking out. What do you do?
1: Another big question. (laughs) I ask these big questions because I know you can deal with them. (laughs) Um, I would say, you know, safety for me is always first. And when I say safety, I mean actually two types of safety. So safety for people or whatever the dog has had an issue with. So we don't want to, of course, have any future bites or aggression incidents as best we can. Um, so setting things up in the home or wherever environment the aggression is happening, to prevent any bite from happening. So whether that's the typical baby gates or muzzles or having a leash on at a particular instance, um, safety for is is very very important because we can't, we can't have rehearsal of biting behavior. Of course, because of the consequences for bites are much different than you know, dog practicing jumping up on grandma when she comes over and just saying hello. So, it's a different type of behavior issue. So, um, you know, there's – and the safety setups are kind of tricky sometimes because we just talked about giving that dog plenty of choice and control and freedom. Mm -hmm. So, it's not like we can say, okay, Mike said, you know, the dogs need to have choice and control and freedom and not – you know, not be trapped in a certain way. And then all of a sudden now Mike's talking about having the dog on leash. How does that add up to doing the both? So you have to get creative in your, in your setups um, and how it's set up in the home. And I typically will go in and look at a client's home and see where's the most open space. Where can this dog go? Like a safe zone, where this dog is in the least trafficked area, but the most open space. So I'm often very creative in how I set up baby gates or exercise pens. Um, long lines can be used instead of a short tether. Uh, definitely a, a well-fit, well-acclimated and comfortable muzzle can be an additional layer of safety. And it also depends on the severity of the bites and what's happening. So some cases are going to be more uh complex and severe because we have higher level bites in which you're going to have more safety layers in place i always for my trainers tell them two layers of safety so two things in between you and the dog and this can be employed by the, the guardians as well like I think two layers of safety in between your dog and whatever the dog's trying to go after uh, in, in the case that it, if it does but so it could be dog behind a baby gate with a muzzle on or the dog in a another room of the house with the door locked and the gate in the hallway so the human doesn't make the mistake of going down the hallway. So little things like that. But whatever's gonna afford the most safety for that dog as well. So that's the other side of safety I always talk about. The dog needs to feel safe.
0: Hundred percent. So- oh my God. I'm so glad you said that. I'm sorry to interrupt. But I'm so glad you say that because there is a there is a difference. I mean obviously physical safety is important, mm-hmm. but that feeling safe, like we need to feel safe in our homes. Yes. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yes. Carry on. Yes. Oh, sorry, yeah. I got excited. No. Carry
1: on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if we, don't prov- if we don't preserve that feeling of safety, then the dog's going to go back to saying, okay, what do I do here? I don't feel safe. I don't feel comfortable. I feel threatened. So how do I know how to get out of that? Use my teeth because that usually works. And it, people don't stick around if they're getting bitten most of the time and other dogs. And so it's if we preserve that safety, then the dog doesn't need to resort to the aggressive response. And that's actually where we want to be working with the dog. So, it keeps it very simple. If we keep that dog feeling safe, they're going to stay under threshold. We're going to be able to work with them. They're going to be in a learning state, meaning they're going to be more likely to take those treats. They're more likely to learn and process the information we're giving them and saying, okay, Uncle Bob coming in to home, but you're way on the other side of the house and treats are happening when Uncle Bob comes in but you feel safe at this distance and uncle Bob's going to stay over there for now. And we're going to gradually get used used to being uncle Bob being here. Um, So the dog's feeling safe the whole time and never resorts to that aggressive response, which we we don't want to see in the first place. So that's really crucial at first steps, you know, after of course, addressing all the things we talked about before, uh, making sure the dog is healthy um, and making sure we're meeting the dog's needs enrichment and things like that. We move into the behavior plan, which is safety first. So, Start with that in mind. Then once you have those things in place, now you can start putting the, you know, the window decorations in the walls up to the foundation that you've just laid, right? That's You've got a solid foundation, dog's healthy, the dog's getting enrichment, where we've got safety in mind, we've got safety for the people and other dogs. Now let's put the behavior change plan in place. And that's how I always work in that order because if yeah. you skip steps, you're going to get into trouble, right? If the dog's not feeling safe, then we're putting the dog over threshold. We're going to make mistakes. The dog's going to um, go back to resorting to what works for them. So, um, yeah, that's my, that's my start to the, the process
0: and what i love about when you speak at conferences and especially the dog behavior conference is that you do gi- do give attendees a lot of fabulous practical tips so uh the practical sort of i always say the long longer term solutions um i know that you're going to be speaking about at the conference and um i'm excited for people to hear that but um could you give like maybe one or two two tips for where you go from there. So you've got mm-hmm. your, your, uh, what well, we call them immediate solutions, but like your, your management plan in place and the fact that, you know, the dog is as healthy as you hope it is. Um, and it feels, it is safe and it feels safe. Where do you go from there?
1: So, um, it, I think I should, also layer in what management looks like, you know, because yes, it can differ yes. depending on what the issue is. So, if it's, if of the issue is like Uncle Bob coming over, that's often, I'm, I'm going to put air quotes, sort of the easier case because we only have to manage it when Uncle Bob comes over or strangers come over. That's a much more, uh, not as a complex thing to manage as if the dog is directing the aggression towards family members or to the guardian through things like that they need to put a harness on the dog or they need to care for the dog and the dog's having issues with that. That adds a significant complexity because let's face it, the the dog's living with that person 24 seven. So we've got to manage it 24 seven. So in addition to teaching the client what to do in those moments where let's say, maybe we don't need to put a harness on the dog today. Maybe we can just get a, a, use a flat collar, we're not reaching over the dog's head and the dog's okay with like, let's clip into the flat collar for today. We can change that for the time being with the goal of being able to put a harness back on the dog or something like that. Or maybe we don't need to do that nail trim fully today. Maybe we can work up to that. So, um, sometimes we need to make adjustments sort of at a micro level with the management. It's not always baby gates, crates, and yeah. X-pens and all yeah. that stuff. Uh, a lot of it has to do with reading the dog's body language and learning what they're communicating. And so I'll work a lot on teaching the clients what their dog, not all dogs, because they don't need to be experts on all dog body language. Most of the time the dog's very unique. They're very expressive in their own way, just like people. You know, people have their unique expressions and movements. So the dog's gonna have that. So what I do is I get a lot of video of the dog just interacting, not putting them in moments where they're gonna display aggression. So mm. I'll make that clear. It's only video of just like normal interactions. Uh, you know, like right before mealtime or right before play or right before a walk. Let's get some of that on video because the dog's going to often still give off micro signals that they're like, hmm, or they might weight shifts just slightly away, or they might, you know, give subtle signs. That's going to be gold information for that client because then they'll be like, oh, because my dog does this particular signal. So, they're not worried about all the other things, you know, that can be very useful information. So, that way, that's management because I'm like, ooh, I just saw my dog give that signal. So, maybe I'll back off on that nail trim today or trying to put that harness on. So, that's kind of s- step one as well, sort of still built into the management, but starting to teeter into behavior change because we're also going to need that information for the behavior change strategies. Yeah. Um, and typically, in most of my cases, the, the tried and true strategies are what's called counter conditioning. So, teaching, create, uh, changing the association for the dog. So, for instance, Uncle Bob coming through the front door predicts the treat party is about to happen, very straightforward, classical Mm counter-conditioning program, Uh, and then something called differential reinforcement of alternative behavior. It's just a fancy term for what do you want the dog to do instead? And typically, it's just noticing whatever provocative stimulus they have the issue with. So, I'm just going to look at that thing. I'm going to look at Uncle Bob approaching, or I'm going to look at the nail trimmer in your hand. I'm going to look at you approaching the food bowl, but then... You're going to let me know that that's great behavior because you're not biting, <laughs> right? So, you, I use marker signals. So I'll mark and reinforce the dog for noticing that. And when you start doing that, the dog's like, okay, when Uncle Bob approaches or the nail trimmer comes out or all these things, I'm going to still be safe, but all I have to do is look at that thing and then I can look back at my my guardian for that treat that I'm about to get. Yeah. That works. That's going to work in more than 90% of your cases. That mm-hmm. is the tried and true strategy. Most trainers at these days that are work aggression cases using positive reinforcement are typically starting with that. Uh, but there's other, there's definitely other things we could do because some dogs may not be so treats or toy motivated, you know, it, provided we've ruled out things that could be affecting those because most dogs are treat motivated, but just, they just haven't we haven't problem solved that, but uh, sometimes we could use other things like just straight desensitization or using the dog's olfactory senses, you know, to to pair positive associations or just allow for the process of desensitization, which is just gradual exposure to that thing. So, let's say the dog's like, I don't care about food. I don't care about toys in the home. I just want to do my thing but we need uncle bob to come in so we might start outside and say okay we're gonna have introduce you to uncle bob because he's got to come over at some point you know it's uncle bob we can't just shun him from the home and we got to get on with a normal life here so um you might just do straight desensitization but uncle bob's at a distance he's hanging around and you're just outside sniffing the grass enjoying life and it's just a gradual exposure where you can learn uncle bob's no threat so there's different processes there's all kinds of different routes we can take um it's just discovering what's most useful for and going to be most effective and most safe for that particular dog that's in front of us. But again, counter conditioning, differential <laughs> reinforcement, that's, that's going to get you there most of the time. If it's done well, um, it's, in my experience, over thousands of cases and now probably tens of thousands of cases of my students, it works most of the time. So, yeah. if it's not broke, don't fix it, is what i saying. Yeah. yeah.
0: Now, this begs the question. It all sounds wonderful, but let's, you know, we're working with people here (laughs) Mm -hmm. and um, a lot of clients are fabulous and a lot of clients are fabulous, but they're really, really busy. And some clients are like, I just, I just don't have the time or the wherewithal to do all of this, or they've got a ton of kids in the house. And you know, uh, what, what happens in those situations? Like, when everything seems to be against success,
1: what do I you love, do? I love this question. I love this question because it's, um, as I mentioned, you, and you had just mentioned it too, you know, that all sounds great and it sounds really easy and usually it is, right? If we take that dog as a trainer into our home, we're like, yeah, I totally got this. We can manage this and, and make usually pretty good progress with most dogs. Um, but what happens in those time? Those what you were just explaining, the guardians that are, super busy or they have lots of people in and out of the home, they don't have the time, maybe they don't have necessarily the skills yet to take on that. So, what do we do? Well, first of all, let's figure out, you know, what is preventing us from making progress with the people side of things? What am I not doing as a consultant or as a trainer to understand why the client's not doing that? And there's often a very valid reason. Sometimes it's the embarrassment factor that we're not noticing Because we're not asking the client, the guardian, if they feel safe. So, we just talked about safety for the dog, right? But what about the person? Do they feel safe actually doing this? Do they feel comfortable with Uncle Bob coming through that front door? Do they feel comfortable holding a nail trimmer in their hand when their dog bit them last week with that nail trimmer? So, we have to make accommodations for where that client's at, where that guardian is thinking in their emotional states as well. We focus on the emotional states of the dog. So, absolutely have to focus on the emotional state of the person and understand that where they're coming from. So, I always ask that question, you know, do you feel safe doing this? Do you feel comfortable doing this? You want me to demonstrate first? Do you want us to go outside first and I'm handling the leash? What can I do to help you see that this can be successful? So, that's step one is just making sure the client feels safe. Uh, The second thing is determining, is this realistic all of the things I'm asking for? So, I, as a trainer, be like, yeah, I've got this really awesome counter-conditioning plan, this robust differential reinforcement of alternative behavior. You know, we're getting into our mind, this trainer mindset, but is it appropriate for that client that has four kids and works two jobs and is commuting two hours a day? Probably not. And so, here's the beautiful thing, though, is that many cases, the management can solve the issue. So, we put good management protocols in place as well as ensuring the dogs experience a good quality of life we can often solve that case for that client and still the dog has a good quality of life so a classic example is the dogs people like stuck on this whole exercise thing you know the tired dog is a good dog yeah which is, tired which dog is, is a
0: good dog which is not, is not not true
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, You know, a tired dog can be a stressed dog, a super stressed dog. Totally.
0: When I'm overtired, I am not a nice person. I feel very (laughs) uncomfortable and I feel ratty and, you know, yes.
1: Yeah. So, so, you know, it's, I think um, it's crucial to kind of make sure we're, um, putting things in place that are appropriate for that client. So, you know, a a good example is like the dogs that go for walks. Uh, People are stuck on the walks. They got to go for walks every day, every day. But that dog is just getting more stressed out and the client's getting more stressed out. And people are just stuck on this whole walk principle. Like, God, dogs got to go for walks. Yes, dogs need to get out and experience the world and get enrichment. But can we just go to a different location where the dog's maybe got plenty of room to move around and the client's not actually walking the dog at all? Can we go rent a sniff spot or find a place where the dog can just go and enjoy life and sniff without any other dogs or people around? Now the client can relax. The dog can relax and enjoy that environment. Or maybe it's like in a city environment. We don't have so many options like that. Can we do more enrichment in the home? Can we do more things for that dog's olfactory senses or tricks, trick training in the home, enrichment toys? What can we do to replace those walks for the time being while this client is super busy and setting them up for success as well? Mm-hmm. So can we stuff a bunch of enrichment toys on Monday? So that way they last all week, right? Can we have the kids set up olfactory factory games in the house? Can we? So we have to work with the client and what's going to be best for that dog. And here's the other nice thing too, is that, Again, we're always focusing on addressing the symptoms, but if we look at the causes, sometimes the case solves itself because yes. we've built in more enrichment, more freedom for that dog in certain contexts. And the dog's like, huh, life is actually pretty darn good here. I'm not stressed out by all these things on the walks. I'm actually just chilling at home, enjoying this enrichment. Get out once in a while and go to these distant locations where I get to sniff, but I'm I'm happy and stress-free at home, but still getting all the enrichment I need. In the attention I need, so yeah, um, addressing those causes because let's face it, in aggression cases, there's often a significant lack of enrichment and lack of exercise because of the excessive management that needs to be put in place. So we can often focus on meeting those needs, you know. Because the example I use, if you look at free roaming dogs or street dogs, the the out of the billion dogs on this planet, estimated billion, you get nine hundred million that are not owned by anybody, and. How much aggression do we see in those dogs? How many behavior problems do we see in those dogs? So minimal, so few and far between. Why? Because those dogs are getting tons of enrichment and social experiences. So, um, and they don't have to resort to the aggressive displays that we see in so many pet dogs. Uh, so, food for thought. You know, it if, is we food for the, thought. if we meet that enrichment, then it often fixes a lot of issues. Yeah.
0: And I, it's almost like we need to go back a little bit. Training has made great advances, but we need to go back to a focus on a bit more on the dog's needs. What, what, listen to what the dog is trying to say and try and give them what they need. But I do remember even as a young child, my grandmother was a breeder of beagles and, um, she had a very organic relationship with her dogs, very organic. She lived in the countryside. There was no training going on. They just were. And if I could tell people, if I could, if, if everybody could feel what that was like, see what would, that was like, that actually she attained such an amazing relationship with her dogs. And they weren't always easy because there was, they just were. It it just felt so much more genuine because there wasn't a lot of pressure put on these dogs to perform. They had to live in a house and they also had a large outside space and they would be taken for walks. And sometimes they were off the lead and sometimes they were on the lead. But there wasn't really a focus put on training, training. Her dogs were very happy. And I do feel like this movement that is happening in dog training, which is very exciting. It's almost going back a little bit towards being more like we were more organic. And as you said, with the street dogs, no, not a lot. There might be over a resource there might be, and that resource might be a mate that that there might be, but but what we're seeing from confining dogs in the home, confining dogs on the lead uh, is is so much of the cause. And what you just said about, you don't have to walk your dog. Why are we so fixated on walking your dog? My husband made fun of me when he's to, you know, we he really hasn't watched a lot of my shows on It's Me or the Dog, but um <laughs> and but he would make fun of me because he's American and he would say, Oh, you have to walk your dog in his American accent when he makes fun of my <laughs> accent. And me say you have to walk your dog and, and but, no, but actually you drew you it's nice if your dog likes going out for walks or runs or whatever, great. But if your dog doesn't, you don't have to walk your dog. I mean, there's other ways. And you've got Sniff Spot here, which is what I love in the United States and, and the UK. We have freedom fields everywhere, freedom fields all around the UK now where you don't have to take your dog every day. But you do a variety of enrichment, maybe two or three times a week. You take them to a freedom field or sniff spot and you just let them just be. If we could get back to, and I'm not going to say, I mean, our homes are not set up for it. A lot of us and our lives are different, where we could just be a bit more organic. Do you think that that would help?
1: I think, I think absolutely. I think if we look at dogs not in just the last, 50 years of human ownership and guardianship and we look at much longer timeframes and we look at dogs around the world, it gives us a real window of insight, you know, of of what dogs truly need and we're missing that. Modern society has caused a lot of these problems in many ways many many different ways you know between our breeding practices and what we're selecting for and the environments we're putting the dogs in and the expectations we have and there's so many you know things that have happened in just the last few decades for dogs that we're seeing a profound increase in behavior problems in pet dogs because we've we're kind of missing again what we've selected for as humans through domestication through thousands of years and now in the last 50 100 years we have these modern society pressures affecting the dog's behavior and it's it's difficult to to watch sometimes because you see some really, you know, the, the classic one is like a livestock guardian dog inside a city apartment. Ooh. I mean, that is, you know, butting heads with genetics as best you can, right? Let's take this dog and just put it in the most difficult environment. You could probably place a dog like that in. Now, it's not to say some of those dogs can't be successful, but a lot of times you're asking for, you know, this, this, again, this conflict between genetics and the society we have now.
0: Yes. Well, this is a reason why I truly love everything that you say, that you, you write about that. I love your videos. And, um, it's Mike, at uh, it's aggressive isn't it? Yes. Not Mike at a great, it's, it's aggressive Yes. And um, and that's your website, which if anybody wants to know anything about, you know, getting user speaker or learning more information or your classes, your is to go on there.
1: Yes, yep, it's all that can be found in one spot, easiest place to look.
0: And what about if um, somebody would want to contact you or you on social media?
1: Yep. I can be messaged on Instagram. It's easy to remember. It's Michael Shikashio on either Instagram or Facebook. I do have aggressive dog, uh, like a, like a page on Facebook as well for, uh, more of the informational educational stuff, but yeah, I have a like personal account and a page and Instagram account. So.
0: Fantastic. Thank you. We, we, you're, you're very much needed in this industry and, um, what you have to say. And, and, and I have to also highlight the fact that in in our industry that is so polarized in so many ways, it to, to have somebody like you that is, I have to say a male, right? That is doing <laughs> positive reinforcement, working aggression cases in a positive way. And I don't want to offend anybody by saying that, but that there's not a lot of male dog trainers that... Are doing things the right way. Is that bad to say that?
1: No, I, in this
0: female-dominated industry, but yeah. but but there are there isn't.
1: You're right. There there isn't. There is uh, unfortunately still a lot of men in our community or our training industry that uh, are resorting to punishment. But you know, I, each day we're we're working towards changing that. You and I and so many others in our community. So um, you know got to tell you kind of an interesting story too so you had mentioned it right in the beginning of the show you know uh, it's me and the dog started in 2004 you said
0: yeah yeah 2004 so like, it I aired feeling, in 2005
1: i was feeling old all of a sudden but i also yeah, no. you know
0: <laughs> no, you can feel tell young you, with me <laughs>
1: <laughs> i also want to tell you that that was you know i started training back in you know i've been training about 23 24 years so that puts what your show right around when i started training you know it's actually i many people don't know well people know this about me now but i'm what's called a crossover trainer and i started um using very heavy-handed you know my first mentor was like a military dog instructor a male um that was uh that was my first instructor so that's what i learned using choke chains prong collars e collars and those kind of things um but it, you know, your show had come around the time I started crossing over. Actually, the timing was actually mm. perfect. Mm. I'm like, huh, this is interesting. Cause I was watching the other show <laughs> we won't mention any names <laughs> <Yeah>. and your <laughs> show as well. And I was like, huh, this is an interesting dichotomy of techniques, but you were part of my crossover journey. Thank you. Uh, and so I want to, uh, to thank you for the work you've done. And, um, uh, it's funny. We also, we also met in person at a conference. You probably don't remember. Um, this was, I would say 2006, 2007. I think it was an IWBC conference, and I was, oh, asking, yes. I was asking, I was asking somebody to take a picture of us. <laughs> it's like, but they were taking video. They weren't like they didn't know how to use the phone, and I was like so nervous at the same time. And I'm like, oh, you know, and like, and you're so gracious. You're like, oh, just yeah, just take it, just take it. You took your time so this, this person could figure out how to use the phone. So, anyways, thank you for for the good influences you've had on me, and, and just look at us now. I mean, just it's amazing how things can change. Change and our, and our styles have evolved and changed as well. And, um, so anyway, it's just a top of the head story for that. I was thinking about.
0: Well, thank as you. We're talking. Thank you. Well, I, a, I, appreciate that a lot and B I remember the IAABC conference and, uh, and I know that I've met you before, but yeah, during that time it was very heady. It was a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm very introverted person. And so, um, you know, for me, I'm kind of almost in a like a stress thing there when I'm around <laughs> lots of people. So I'm not I'm better now. But something you said about that, I kind of cringe as well, just because I'm like, oh, my God, the first shows that came out in 2005 and I've already been training for like eight years before then. is like, oh, my God. But I look back and some of the information is still very relevant today. But then I look yeah. back at that and I go, oh, oh my God. <laughs> As in, that's what we were taught, right? When I yeah. learned, I was taught about the hierarchy. I was taught that that's that's mm-hmm. how I learned, and um, th- using sound aversion was much better than physical punishment. I never used physical punishment, but I definitely use sound aversion. Let's let's clang some pan lids together and scare the shit out of the dog, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, and and that sort of evolution. So, I really hope that. Yeah, I'm still doing it now. So that obviously the 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 you know that that uh, all our techniques change. Yeah, and I think we have to be open to change. But well, I,
1: I think but it's a yes, great message. You? Yeah, yeah. You know, for the younger trainers, just you know, we were younger trainers back then doing different things than we do now. So the younger trainers now listening to this are going to you know, 20 years from now, be doing things totally differently. And that's the evolution. That's the, the the nice thing about growth. You have to be open to change and growth and learning always or else you get stagnant. So I think that's a good takeaway message from this is that, yeah, you know, just remember 20 years from now you're gonna be totally different yeah there you go we're gonna be old
0: farts. you're gonna come and visit us in our people's home but definitely me my husband always goes oh my god you're gonna be the crazy lady you really are and i am gonna be like yeah, i'll have no teeth i'll be in my wheelchair and i'll be ordering everybody around so oh my gosh but anyway mike thank you as we say in the uk you're a diamond you're an absolute diamond in this industry and um It's the reason why we send all of our students to you. We recommend your courses. Thank you for all the work you're doing to help the lives of dogs and people all over the world. And I can't wait to hear more at our conference. You're going to be speaking. April the 19th to the 21st, everybody. And um, you don't want to miss this presentation. Go to dogbehaviorconference.com to register, and you'll be able to hear Mike and 11 other amazing speakers talk about everything dog. It is the conference of the year, along with Mike's wonderful aggression conference, which is in October, isn't it? Isn't Scottsdale, yes. Arizona?
1: Yes, October 11th to
0: 13th. This year. Okay, 11th to 13th. And and, and if, if you can't be there in person, you have an online option too. Yes. Do you? Yes. Okay.
1: We will be okay. live streaming.
0: Yep. Okay, great. That's it. Well, thanks everybody. Thanks so much for joining me, Mike, and um, thanks everyone for listening. I knew that you would love this podcast. I'm so glad that uh, Mike was able to join us today, and uh, I will see you guys soon.
1: Thanks for tuning in to Victoria Stillwell's Positively Podcast. For Victoria's online dog training courses, more information and helpful dog training tips. Visit Victoria's official website at Positively.com. Get connected on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media as Victoria Stilwell and follow her on Twitter at Victoria S. Learn to become a professional dog trainer with the Victoria Stilwell Academy at vsdogtrainingacademy.com. And be sure to tune in next time as Victoria helps you and your dog live your best life together Positively.